our preaching text this morning is from Jeremiah 1 and 7. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, to deliver you says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over the nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there is this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, that you enter the, these gates to worship our word, our Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, or shed the innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other goods to hurt your own, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave you of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, send us your word today. Open us up to hear it, to turn where it corrects us, and to trust in it where it comforts us. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got to remember where I was starting my sermon now. Oh, yes. So Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the prophet that we are studying today. And we heard there at, in Jeremiah chapter 1 at the beginning of our reading uh, this bit of Jeremiah's call story. Now, we usually think of prophets, or at least I think we tend to think of prophets as these sort of larger-than-life heroic figures, right, who step into the middle of the halls of power and they say a word and it cuts to the heart of the kings or of the people who are in power. Uh, and uh, there is some of that, and even in Jeremiah there's some of that. 
Uh, but I want to look at his call story because there's something a little different about this uh, call story here. Actually, it's not that unusual among the prophets. But so in Jeremiah 1, at the beginning of our reading, uh, here is Jeremiah getting called. This is one of the loveliest promises in all of Scripture. Uh, and you hear God saying to Jeremiah this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, it's just a lovely promise, isn't it? Before, you were in the, uh, before I formed you, I knew you. And then what does Jeremiah respond? Ah, he says, ah, Lord God, I, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a youth. I'm just a boy. I don't think Jeremiah was actually a boy. I think he's using uh, hyperbole here. I think he was probably, we're guessing, maybe around 20 or so, but he feels like a boy. Some of you remember feeling uh, 20 uh, and uh, feeling like a boy. I still feel a little bit that way, even though I'm 32 now. Anyway, um, I don't know how to speak. I am only a boy. So Jeremiah here, this prophet to the nations, as God has appointed him, has consecrated him before he is born, hears this commission from God, and he is frightened. Surely not me. Now, if you remember, Moses has a similar conversation with God at the burning bush. Isaiah, uh, we didn't hear Isaiah's call story, but when Isaiah has uh, this uh, vision of God in the temple, he has a similar response. Oh, Lord, woe is me. Uh, I am a man of unclean lips, he says. Uh, there's this sense that he is not worthy to go and do the work to which he is called. And yet God says uh, a little later on, I appoint you today over nations and over kingdoms. This is a high calling which Jeremiah has been called to, and it is a tumultuous time to be appointed over nations and kingdoms. So the last century of that southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem, where we've been for the last couple of weeks, the last century of Judah as an independent kingdom, as an independent nation, is a tumultuous century. So the last two weeks we heard from Micah and Isaiah, both of them were prophets at the time of King Hezekiah in, in Jerusalem. And as Ron mentioned last week, if you were here, uh, Hezekiah was the first good king, the first faithful king Jerusalem had had in several generations. Hezekiah's father was one of the worst kings uh, that Jerusalem had as far as faithfulness to God went. He practiced all sorts of idol worship, worshiped all sorts of other gods, even, uh, says, passed his son through the fire. That is, he uh, practiced child sacrifice as a way of getting ahead with the gods. And Hezekiah, when he comes in, he turns the people back to the worshiping God. Now, he can't completely reform everything. He does kind of what's in his power but at the same time, Jerusalem is, comes under siege from this empire, the Assyrian Empire. And our reading last week was during that siege, if you recall. Well, after Hezekiah, things go downhill quickly. For Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, is uh, actually even worse than Hezekiah's father was. Let me just read for you from uh, 2 Kings, the evaluation of uh, Manasseh in uh, 2 Kings. I'm in chapter 21 here. Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, following the abominable practices of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal. He made a sacred pole as King Ahab of Israel had done. He worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of the, the house of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire. 
He practiced soothsaying and augury. He dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, and it provoked the Lord to anger. Manasseh is the worst king Jerusalem ever sees, at least in terms of faithfulness to God. Manasseh is the worst king. He's also one of the longest ruling kings. He happens at this time of uh, sort of stability, and he's able to have this uh, more than half a century reign in Jerusalem. And during that time, he does all sorts of damage. After Manasseh, his son Ammon takes the throne, and after three years, Ammon is assassinated. After Ammon is assassinated, his son Josiah takes the throne, and this is when we're getting into the time of Jeremiah now, and Josiah is about as far the opposite from his grandfather Manasseh as any king could be. In fact, if you're going to rank the kings in terms of faithfulness, as the books of uh, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings do, uh, you would go David at the top and then probably Josiah, then Hezekiah, then maybe Solomon. Solomon's a little bit iffy uh, in there. Uh, But Josiah's right near the top. As far as the legacy of the kings after David, Josiah is sort of the chosen one. In fact, if you were hoping for a Messiah and Josiah comes along, you might think this guy's it. Josiah reinstates the reforms that Hezekiah did. He actually goes farther than Hezekiah did. He's able to do more. The Assyrians aren't as strong uh, in the region at this point. Uh, he's, he tears down these high, high places. He gets rid of these altars. Uh, he uh, reinstitutes uh, uh, worship of the Lord. There's even new, uh, not really new, but old uh, pieces of the Old Testament books from Moses, uh, we think maybe part of Deuteronomy, is discovered. It had been hidden in the temple at some point, maybe from those kings who were so against the worship of Yahweh uh, during his time. In fact, a lot of maybe what we know today is the Old Testament is put together during the time of Josiah. He's an important figure. And yet the place, the t- by the time he comes to reign, the, the region is in such turmoil and in such instability that it cannot be long lived. And as we read in that time of Manasseh, if I had kept reading on there, uh, a word comes through the prophet saying, I am going to do a thing in Jerusalem that will make the ears of all who hear it tingle. The die has already been cast, even by the time Josiah comes along. Even though he is the best king they have seen, perhaps since David, it's simply too little too late. So just to give you a sense of what's going on in the grander scheme of things, you've got the Assyrian Empire. They've been the major power in the region for a while. So you remember last week, they were the ones who were sieging Jerusalem. It was their message. They were saying, well, the gods commanded us to come. You think your God can save you from us? And of course, Jerusalem did not fall. So I guess the answer was yes. Uh, But they're the, the power in the region at that time. But they're getting weaker and there's all of these other powers that are now becoming to, beginning to rise up and uh, to confront the Assyrians. So uh, to the, I've got to flip things for you. So to the east, is this east for you? Yes. To the east, uh, you've got Babylon, who has recently freed themselves from Assyria, and they are now expanding westward into the Assyrian territory. To the west of Assyria, they have the Medes uh, in uh, part of near modern-day Greece who are expanding westward. Eventually, they will uh, be expanded with Alexander the Great. You'll uh, recognize that name, but that's centuries later. And then in the south, Egypt is beginning to feel their power, and they're beginning to become political powers in this region. And of course, right about here, you've got this little kingdom of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. So Assyria and Babylon and the Medes to a lesser extent and Egypt are all vying for power and Judah's right in the middle of all of it. 
And so Josiah gets involved. He tries to uh, help uh, the Babylonians, actually. So the Assyrians and the Babylonians are fighting. Egyptians at this time are allied with Assyria. They're coming up uh, to, uh, I flipped it again for you, but Assyria and Babylon, they're coming up to reinforce them. And Josiah goes out to stop uh, the Egyptian army from reinforcing. And in that battle, he is killed. When he dies, his son takes over, uh, and his son reigns for three months before the Egyptians come in and depose him and put in a more friendly to Egypt king, another son of Josiah. That son reigns for about 10 years, switching allegiances between Egypt and Babylon, who's now taken over the Assyrians, not sure which one's more in powerful, which alliance uh, makes more sense, until he rebels against Babylon. Babylonians come down and they uh, siege Jerusalem. He dies during the siege. His son reigns again for three months is deposed by the Babylonians, and they put another son of Josiah uh, in his place who will be friendlier to Babylon. He reigns for about eight years, eventually decides to rebel against Babylon again. The Babylonians come in, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and that is the end of the legacy and the at least political legacy of David. That is the end of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Never again will there be a king in Jerusalem as there was at that time, uh, carrying the people off to the Babylonian exile. This is what Jeremiah is called into. So Jeremiah starts his ministry right near the end of Josiah's life, right when things really start to go sideways, as the Egyptians and the Babylonians and everyone are fighting over this little patch of land in Judah. And this is what God has called him into, and he says, I have appointed you over nations and kingdoms. So the second half of our reading then is this temple sermon of Jeremiah. To understand it, you have to understand something that was uh, taught and believed in Jerusalem uh, off and on over the years, maybe even from about the time of David or just after David onward. And it's a theology that's sometimes called Zion theology. And you see it in the Psalms all the time, uh, this, this thing about Zion. But the way that it basically was, uh, was understood was that because God had chosen Jerusalem as the place for his temple, because God had chosen Jerusalem, as we heard in that uh, Second Kings passage, uh, the place where I chose to put my name, Jerusalem would never fall to a foreign army. So it didn't matter how the people of Jerusalem were. It didn't matter if the nation worshipped Yahweh or whoever else. It didn't really matter if they treated each other with justice, if they followed the commandments, if they uh, oppressed, uh, the, as we hear in that sermon, the, the alien or the, or the migrant, we might say today, the alien or the uh, widow or the orphan. It just mattered that God's temple was there. The holiness of the building would preserve them, would keep them safe. And that's why Jeremiah can stand outside the temple and say, don't be uh, deceived by these uh, uh, false words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as though the temple will save you, will keep you safe when you uh, have abandoned God in every other part of your lives. Now, you can imagine that Jeremiah was not popular for saying this sort of thing. I mean, you can imagine if somebody was standing out there when you arrived for worship today, standing on the corner and they had a sign that said something like, God is not in this place, right? Don't trust in these false words that you're safe. You wouldn't feel very good as you walked by this person, right? You wouldn't really want them out there. But that's essentially what Jeremiah is doing, standing outside the temple as the people come in to worship God. Let me just reread a little bit of that because I think the indictment is so strong there. Uh, from this, from chapter seven here. Oops, there's chapter seven. 
Here you are, Jeremiah shouts out probably, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? Will you swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, and we hear Jesus quote this in our New Testament reading, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. That is a chilling indictment. I think that end especially. You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. We don't say the temple of the Lord anymore to keep ourselves safe, to make ourselves feel secure before God. We probably appeal to other things. When we were talking about this in Bible study, uh, one of the phrases that came up was a Christian nation. Do we rely on the Christianness of our nation in order to be secure before God? Do we rely on our politics, that we are conservative or perhaps progressive, to be secure before God? Do we rely on our income, that we make enough to support ourselves and we're not freeloading on anybody? to justify ourselves before God? Do we rely on our race? Do we rely on our language? Do we rely on our religion even, that we are Lutheran or that we are evangelical or that we are uh, confessional or even that we are Christian, that because we bear this name, we are secure? And yet we go on doing all of those abominations that are listed for us right in the Ten Commandments. Do we steal? Do we murder? Do we commit adultery? And remember how Jesus interprets these things. To murder is to be angry with another. To commit adultery is to look at another with lust, not even to act on it. And then come here and say, we are safe? Jeremiah's word is confronting because it throws us back on our own righteousness. And we of all people should know that there is nothing there to save us. That as much as we might try and claim some special identity about ourselves that sets us apart from those other sinners out there, there is nothing there that can save us. Because whether that, those particular list of sins that Jeremiah lists off, whether those apply to you or not, surely you can fill in the blank with some of your own. We cannot stand before it. God doesn't owe us anything. So where does our hope lie then? I mean, are we just, we just have to be righteous? Do we just have to kind of work up the the strength in order to not sin anymore? We know we can't do that. We confessed it at the beginning of our worship today. Well, Jeremiah himself points to it later in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. This is what uh, is prophesied, what is promised here. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. 
from the least to the greatest, says the Lord. And I will, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In Jesus Christ, this promise is fulfilled. It is fulfilled for you. It is fulfilled for me. It is fulfilled for all of the world. Because in Jesus Christ, your sin was taken on the cross and it was defeated and it was done away with and now you are forgiven. And even though you still live with this old sinner in you that keeps wanting to do everything for itself, him or herself, that keeps wanting to uh, take advantage of those who have less power than you, who wants to oppress the alien and the orphan and the widow, whatever forms those may take in your life, the forgiveness of sins is with you day in and day out because God is creating a new you. God is writing his law on your heart so that one day, one day when that old sinner is gone and when all that is left is this new creature, this new creation of God, you too will live righteously and justly. You too will live before God safely and securely for God has made a promise to you to forgive you, to keep you with him, to love you, and to make you new. Amen.